Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. This week on the show, you've heard of the elephant in the room, you've heard of the black swan, but there's yet another zoological reference on the minds of investors and policymakers alike. And that's the theory of the gray rhino. Matt Klein talks to author Michelle Wooker, who wrote a book about this idea of the obvious dangers that are barreling towards us that we often tend to ignore. And in their conversation, they talk about the psychology behind the gray rhino, how it applies to the way predictions and policy are made, and why some of us are more apt than others to remain in its way. Michelle Wooker, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. So we're here to talk about a concept that you came up with a couple of years ago called the gray rhino, which, as as you note in the book, all rhinoceroses are gray, even if they're a variety of different names. Can you explain what the gray rhino is to you and, and why this concept is useful? Sure. Well, a gray rhino is a big, scary, horned, dangerous thing that's coming right at you. And you've got a choice to let yourself get trampled or to get out of the way or to harness the strength of the rhino for your own purposes. Um, it's a really a metaphor for the obvious things that are that are coming at us that are dynamic that don't get nearly as much attention as we think that they ought to. And my thought was that we really don't pay enough attention to how bad we are at dealing with what's right in front of us. The gray rhino is different from the elephant in the room, which by definition just stands there and nobody says anything and nobody does anything. But the gray rhino is something that we do talk about and we still don't do anything about. And I felt we needed a, an emotional metaphor that helped us to better focus our attention and create a sense of urgency when something really obvious, really bad, really dangerous is happening where the cost is very high that we really need to do something about it. So another zoological uh, example of how we think about these concepts is, is one that you discuss in the book as well. It's the idea of the black swan. And these are pretty different from each other. I think you can have sort of complementary thinking about how, the, how to manage risk in those. But my sort of sense is that the black swan is it's a thing that because it is inconceivable until you see it, you can't prepare for it except in the most general way of just trying to be more resilient as a society. The gray rhino, on the other hand, is, is the idea that, well, you can actually predict pretty clearly what the danger is and react in a very specific way. I mean, is that, how, is that sort of how you see this distinction? I mean, what, what's your sort of take on all that? Sure. Well, that the black swan is highly improbable. In fact, you know, by definition, if you can picture what it is and imagine that it would happen, it's not a black swan anymore. So all these armchair black swan forecasters saying the next black swan is X, Y, Z are, are kind of missing the point. And the gray rhino is something that is probable. But I want to qualify that people are way too obsessed about predictions being exact down to the tiniest detail. And, and that's not really the point. It's something that you know there is a 
very good chance is going to happen. Sometimes it's things that happen over and over again. Market goes up, market goes down. Economy grows, economies shrink. It's, it's pretty cyclical and it's regular. You don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but you know that it's coming. And there are often many indicators that suggest that it's coming sooner rather than later. And the thing about gray rhinos is that ideally you recognize that it's coming and you do something about it. And particularly on the policy side, if you do the right thing, that means the rhinos may be going to change direction and not trample you after all. And if you've predicted ahead of time in such a way that people with the power to change things fix it and it doesn't happen, you get called a Cassandra when actually you called the right thing. And by drawing attention to it, you actually helped keep people from getting trampled. And I don't think that we give enough credit to people who predict things in such a way that it helps people to get out of danger. Absolutely. And of course, Cassandra was famous not just for warning of doom, but for being correct and being ignored in the process. And we forget that. We, we, we forget that. The way people talk about Cassandras now is that, oh, it's somebody who's sort of a malcontent gadfly who's always saying the sky is falling. You know, it, and that's really a you know, chicken little, not a Cassandra. But the, the myth was that she was cursed with the ability to see what was going to happen and to not be believed. And we, we need to remember that's how the story started. So one of the things I find very striking about this book and, and what you're saying now is that a lot of it sounds like common sense. And yet it's also something that clearly isn't informing a lot of actual decisions that people make. So first, you know, what was it that made you realize that and appreciate it and, and decide to write the book? And then secondly, what are some of the big reasons that we, despite this sounding like a reasonable way of going about life, we don't actually really behave in the way we should? Well, this is, of course, a year when, when common sense hasn't been getting its due. We're surrounded by, by fake news and uh, reality TV and drama all the time. And uh, there have been a couple of times I've been on TV in the past and, and afterwards the the host has, has come on and you know said into my earphone, wow, you know, I really appreciate the way you just talk about this in such a matter-of-fact, sensible way. And, of course, to get heard, you have to be kind of outrageous and ridiculous. And uh, so it's sort of paradoxical that that being common sense in a certain way is outrageous. What got me thinking about the book was that in my former life, I was the Latin America Bureau Chief at International Financing Review and spending a lot of time in Argentina in 1999-2000. And at that time, you could see the debt was going up, the reserves were going down, the economy was going down. It didn't take a very strong command of math to be able to understand what was going to happen. And uh, about nine months before Argentina collapsed, there was a proposal that went around Wall Street for a voluntary restructuring, which would have been about a 30% haircut. And the banks didn't want to do it because they were doing these very expensive restructurings and getting tons of underwriting fees. And Argentina really didn't want to give up the idea of being the darling of the emerging markets. And they all had this sense of magical thinking. And of course, Instead of losing 30% of their money, most investors lost 70%. So it was, it was really not a great deal. So you fast forward 10 years, and at the time I was at the World Policy Institute, uh, we were partnered with New America on a project called the World Economic Roundtable. And I wrote a paper about Greece, which had very similar dynamics. I called it Chronicle of a Debt Foretold. And said, hey, you know, Greece is facing very similar dynamic. We saw how it worked out in Argentina. Greece could learn something. And 10 years after Argentina, the dynamic was very different. 
when I wrote about this proposal in uh, 2001 to restructure Argentinian debt, I got all these phone calls from bankers saying, hey, we think this is what needs to happen, but we can't say in public, are we going to get fired? And when I wrote the paper in 2011, it was one of the, the earlier calls for a restructuring. Following that, people did talk about it. And that led to Greece and its creditors sitting down and at the 11th hour, pulling back from the edge and doing an orderly restructuring instead of something that could have brought down the whole euro. And so my question was really, what makes the difference between policymakers, investors, anyone really, who sees a really big, scary thing with a horn pointing at them, coming their way and threatening to trample them? Why do some people get out of the way and why do some people not? And that's really how the, the question that is at the center of the book started. And so, I mean, it's striking that, you know, there is this difference. I mean, you point out in, in several of the opening chapters or what are the psychological institutional biases that prevent people from doing things that they know they should do at some level. So, I mean, kind of give us a sense of what, what those are and why, even though we all, if you were to sort of stop and ask anyone, is it make more sense to deal with a problem before it gets too big versus not? There are all these phrases, you know, an ounce of prevention is better than a pound of cure and the versions of that in a whole bunch of different languages. It nevertheless doesn't usually happen that way. So, and you do a good job of tracing kind of a lot of the reasons why. So can you give us a flavor of, of what those, those biases are that prevent us from doing this? Sure. Well, it's so exciting to see all the work that's been going on in the field of behavioral economics, Daniel Kahneman, Richard Thaler, you know, all of the people who've done really groundbreaking work on that. So to really want to give a hat tip to them. But they've pointed out ways in which the human mind plays tricks on us, but, but it does it in a somewhat predictable way. One of those is confirmation bias. If you're in a room with a bunch of people who are very like you, it's quite likely that whatever the first person says is much more likely to get uh, embraced by everyone around the room, that we're not as likely to to debate and look at alternative points of view. Another one of the biases is the, the optimism bias, that we absorb information that is rose-colored the way we'd like to see it, and we just push away information that's not what we want to hear. You know, it's like the see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil monkeys. You know, there's also the loss aversion, that we're much likelier to take risks to keep from losing what we have. And so we, we enter into risky behaviors. We are extremely erratic in the information that we absorb or not. And I think one of the biggest things is that we don't evaluate costs and benefits and likelihood of disaster as methodically and accurately as we should. We really enter into this sort of magical thinking. You look at uh, at GM with the 57 cent ignition switch part that failed, and it would not have been cheap to fix that. But, you know, something in the tens or hundreds of millions would have been an awful lot less than the uh, last count I heard, this was a way back, was over $7 billion in costs to deal with it. Same goes for, for Wells Fargo, for VW, for Takata, for any of these corporate uh, scandals where people saw a problem, it went all the way to the top, and people came up with all sorts of reasons for why it wasn't going to affect them, why it wasn't going to happen on their watch, and why they felt it was okay to take the risk 
of ignoring the problem. And it really did not work out well in most of those cases. The case of GM is a really interesting one because, of course, there's a story that they actually did run the numbers and they made the decision to not fix the switch because they thought that the cost of settlements on a sort of ad hoc basis would be lower than replacement. And I guess they didn't anticipate properly what would have happened if people realized that they'd done that as opposed to simply not catching it at all. But I mean, there are a couple other points you make out that are really interesting. One is that, if I'm paraphrasing, but you write that we're biased to take risks that we don't realize that we're taking. And so it's it's almost a question of being sort of complacent rather than consciously being a, a risk taker. And I found that a very interesting point, which I, you know, I guess sort of ties in with these, these corporate malfeasance one. And another bias you point out to, which it's funny because it doesn't seem like it's as relevant now than maybe when you wrote the book originally, but that people, their independent decision-making lobe in the brain shuts down when information is presented by someone who looks like an expert. Two interesting things I also thought you, you brought up as um, contributing to, to why we were kind of miss out on things. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting, this, uh, you know, this expert thing. I'm, I'm doing some, some more research right now on how different groups of people perceive risks very differently. And you know, experts and lay people have very, very different uh, opinions about what's risky and, and what's not. And I think people don't always have enough confidence in their own gut reactions. And if they can turn to someone they think has more experience or more expertise, They've got sort of the reaffirmation that they need. And that's really interesting in the political context we have right now, because you see this huge wave of anti-expertism. And I think that that may very well be you know, a, a counter reaction to our normal instincts. But another reason why we really don't pay attention to things is that uh, in some cases, there are incentives that, that make it sensible to say, hey, I'm going to get awake scot-free, you know, the, the too big to fail problem, a lot of the moral hazard issues in the, in the finance world. And that interestingly, the, the collapse of Lehman Brothers was a, a failed attempt to try to face down the moral hazard problem, but that the, the people who made that decision didn't realize the chain effect that letting Lehman Brothers go would have. Just to be clear, when you talk about too big to fail and, and Lehman Brothers and moral hazard, it's the idea that certain financial institutions are effectively so important to the economy or perceived to be so important to the economy that people believe governments won't allow those institutions to go bankrupt. And therefore, the people who run those institutions were willing to take more risks than would be prudent if they didn't believe they had that kind of government protection. Absolutely. And, and so this moral hazard, this, you know, this belief that somebody's going to bail you out. And so, you know, you can sort of privatize your your profit and socialize the risk, I think is a very big distortion in some of the logic and decision making that happens and on a certain level is rational. I mean, if you believe you can get higher profits by taking huge risks and that somebody else is going to cover the downside, well, you know, in many cases, why, why wouldn't you? But, you know, the truth is that not everybody got away uh, scot-free, that the consequences were, were huge for that. So right. I think we need to take a much deeper look at our incentive system and the possibilities that people will, will get away with risky behavior that, that really puts other people at risk much more than themselves. And sometimes those incentives are, are sort of subconscious. I mean, you have a really interesting example about hospitals and infections and the way that 
everyone gets paid that if people actually were presented with the choice, no one actually wants it to work out the way it does. But perhaps because of the way that doctors are remunerated, they, they end up doing things that end up personally benefiting them, but harming patients. Maybe you're going to give us more of that example. Yeah, well, you know, this, uh, you know, sort of ounce of prevention, pound of cure <laughs> is, is uh, quite true in the medical field that, you know, if you're if you're getting paid to do uh, to do tests and that that's the metric for your compensation rather than, you know, whether people are getting better or how healthy people are, then you're, you're going to do the tests. You're going to take risks. You're going to go through the motions uh, instead of doing what you really think is right. And uh, yeah, actually, another example of this goes back to way, way, way in my early days when I was a, a young reporter writing about the Caribbean and doing some writing about the drug wars. And uh, I remember talking to a, a journalism professor about, you know, well, the, you know, the DEA, the Dr- Drug Enforcement Administration, you know, wants to cut down the drug flow. And he gave me this sort of, you know, wise, cynical veteran journalist look. He's like, really? Is that really what you think? And and I thought about it. And it's true for any sort of bureaucratic organization. Uh, you know, your budget base is based on how much you spend this year. If you don't spend this much, then you're not going to get the budget next year. So there's no incentive to spend rationally or sensibly or, you know, not spend a zillion dollars on a toilet seat. Right. You don't actually benefit from winning the drug war if you're the one being paid to fight it as, as, exactly. as a cynical view. But yeah, and on the hospital point, if I, if I remember reading correctly, you, you, you were talking about how patients who get infected when they're in the hospital being treated for something else and have to get readmitted, that this ends up costing hospitals a lot of money, so hospitals don't like it. But the doctors themselves, if I remember reading this correctly, they actually personally benefit because they get paid for treating patients twice. And that was something that even if doctors would never go out and say, oh, we would like people to get infections so we can treat them more, that may have maybe colored the way they were approaching things like safety and cleanliness. I mean, Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think it goes back to figuring out how we, how we track success, how we reward success. Can we change the payment system to, you know, the hospitals that have the lower readmittance rates get a bonus? You know, similar to to schools, you see stories about schools that are uh, kicking out kids who they think are likely to flunk tests so that their test grades are higher. All throughout the system, there, there are all kinds of perverse incentives that make people do the wrong things in a way that on a certain level is rational, but that ends up bringing the whole system down. So one of the things that I, I thought was very interesting about this book is that most examples we've talked about so far actually have to do with human institutions and, and problems of our own creation. But most of the examples in the book and most of the ones that are most striking in terms of this gray rhino framework really seem to have to do with the interaction that humans have with the natural world. And you talk about things like flooding and earthquakes and fires and, and, and things like that. And I, I mean, just a couple of examples that you bring up is that New Orleans was warned well in advance of Hurricane Katrina about the dangers that could come from a hurricane that wasn't even as strong as what ended up happening based on the simulation, I believe, they did of Hurricane Pam. I mean, there's the, the case of, of Houston floods where, again, even just as recently as the year up to it, people were talking about how or warning about how the development on the land had prevented rain from being absorbed and, and would increase the risk of flooding. You have a wonderful statistic in here about the percentage of new homes built since 1990 that were put in place of high risk of wildfire. I think it's like, what, two-thirds or something, roughly? Um, it's just remarkable. I mean, these are these seem like very obvious 
mistakes to be making. I mean, if we're talking about human institutions and the economy, we can say, oh, well, it's a complex system, it's behavior, it's hard to necessarily anticipate how these things work, people adapt. If you're talking about biology and physics, this seems like we actually have a much better ability to predict these kinds of problems. And it's, it's, it's really remarkable to me that this is something that just keeps happening. For, first of all, can you get, kind of tell us more about these examples and then, and then what's your sense of why we just keep messing it up in general? Sure. Well, this, in many cases, is a, a result of good intentions gone wrong. You look at uh, insurance programs, whereas you know, you've got flood insurance. You say, okay, well, you know, the, the chances are, you know, one in a hundred that there's going to be a flood. I can take that. I'll have my, you know, 99 years of margaritas on the back deck and, you know, I'll, I'll take that chance. And then, of course, the flood happens and you get paid out through both your private insurance and the and the federally subsidized insurance, and you rebuild in the same area at a time when scientists say that you know the risk of more violent storms is going up. And so when you're protected by insurance, you often will make decisions that you're that that aren't really in your best interest. Same thing happens with uh, with derivatives, which were invented originally as a way to to hedge risk and try to uh, try to reduce your risks. And of course, people found ways to use them to speculate. And in both cases, flood insurance and derivatives, you've got a very good idea that is used in ways that end up being potentially even more dangerous than the problem they were invented to solve. I mean, some of these examples are also situations where governments are simply ignoring warnings either from other governments or for experts employed by those governments. I mean, the New Orleans example is one, I guess Houston is, is sort of one where there were sort of distinct recommendations that had been made and things that could have been done better, maybe not necessarily in the time frame uh, that they had. And nevertheless, they weren't really acted on. And I mean, that's, you do have an interesting counterexample though, in your book, which is um, there's a, a town in Canada that's vulnerable to flooding and they basically figured a way around it. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of debate in Canada, particularly about about climate change, incre- increasing the likelihood of, of floods, of storms. And, you know, in Canada, you do have examples of people that uh, that put in place resiliency measures, uh, you know, dams, other ways to better hold back the floodwaters. And in many cases, they've actually paid back. I, I forget the exact numbers; they're, they're in the book. But you know, in this case, in some, in, it was derided as a as a boondoggle. But then the next time a big flood came through, it ended up saving many, many, many times more than the investment. And you know, here again, you've got a set of trade offs uh, because some of these resilience measures are very expensive, and counterfactuals are hard to manage, you know, until you get the next big storm that prevents damage and the town next door that, you know, has its city hall washed away, you know, until you get those, you're going to be accused of a boondoggle. And in some cases, the debate's very difficult. You know, in New York City, right after Hurricane Sandy, there were lots of talks about, you know, do we put in flood barriers? And very, very serious and I think thoughtful cost-benefit analyses. You know, I think the result is uh, I don't think we've seen as much resilience uh, work as people would have liked in New York City. But we do need to think very, very hard about what the trade-offs are, what's at risk. Can we 
build our cities in a way to be more more resilient. And you know, and this in some ways goes goes back to the black swan thinking a little bit. You know, you can't picture exactly what's going to happen or when, but there are some things that you could do that can protect against any any number of problems. You know, you know, raise the electric generators to a higher floor. You know, don't put as much as, as much of your infrastructure on the the lower floors of the building. Put in wetlands that are designed to absorb some of this flow or not, which which actually, you know, Houston's bayous are designed to do. But the problem is that all of the, the development and the other things that were not done right were so much that the bayous couldn't even manage uh, the the amount of displaced water. Right. They paved over a lot of them. I mean, one thing that, that you mentioned about, particularly the example of the electric generators, is that sometimes these aren't even the most expensive kinds of fixes. I mean, building a flood wall the kind that like the Netherlands has and that's been proposed for New York or whatever, it would be extraordinarily expensive. But on the other hand, moving, I mean, you have a great example when the Japanese, the Tohoku earthquake, and then the flooding that hit the reactors in, in Fukushima. I mean, I remember vividly when, when the Daiichi reactor um, was flooded and there was a whole issue about the radiation leakage and, and all of this stuff. But you point out that there was another reactor that was not that far away called Daini. And I believe that basically means like, you know, reactor one and reactor two or something. And that one had no problems because they simply had their backup power generator on a different floor. And so when the water came in, it wasn't an issue. I mean, this is, yeah, it's not even necessarily a case of the high upfront cost. It's, I guess it's just sort of, you know, are you thinking properly about, you know, how to do reasonable things to protect yourself? Yeah. And in some cases we, you know, we don't know what the solution is, but in cases like that, there's, there's very low hanging fruit. And some of that, you know, in our daily lives, too, by, by creating habits that keep problems from getting bigger down the road, you can dramatically reduce the cost and dramatically reduce the likelihood that something really bad is going to happen. But we don't pay enough attention to those things. And, and so that's why I've also been very happy to see the work on habits, you know, creating habits, doing things more automatically, creating this sort of, you know, automatic triggers if you know, floodwaters hit a certain certain level, then you have to do X, Y, and Z things. You know, if securities hit this price, then you've got to rearrange your portfolio. I mean, things that are automatic that can override some of our innate over-optimism. And then, you know, on the downside, the excessive negative behavior. You know, we, we tend to uh, to go too far up and then too far down, and we haven't quite hit this sort of you know, Cinderella happy medium. Yeah. I mean, related to that, one of the points you make, which is interesting, is that there's there's evidence to suggest that in general, men and women respond differently to stress, where men will take more risk and women become more conservative. And it's not necessarily obvious which one is you know the right answer in all circumstances, but it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting example of how you know, in certain cases, one it might be a better approach than another, but it's important to realize that there's sort of these inbuilt biases that can affect the way decisions are, are made. Absolutely. And, and Therese Houston has, has done really amazing work on this in her book, How Women Decide. What I was also very interested to see was that in hindsight, women judging their behavior tended to be harder on themselves than men. So, you know, men did something risky and they looked back and they thought it was more brilliant than it really was. Uh, and women tended to have a much more realistic assessment of things. Some of the work I'm doing right now is actually looking at some of these these risk 
perceptions around the world and how cultures, how whether you're in a group or not affects those. Uh, when I go to China, it's absolutely amazing to see how they've applied this gray rhino concept. They're, they're using it to shape uh, financial risk policy, monetary fault policy. Uh, in November, when there was a huge fire in an apartment building in Beijing, the head of the Communist Party for Beijing came out and said, hey, urban safety, fire safety is a gray rhino. We really need to do with this. And uh, I've been looking at some of the research into risk sensitivities in Asia, and it's much, much higher than in the West. So it's been jarring. I was in China three times last year and seeing how much concern people had over, over climate change, certainly pollution they're living with every day that's gotten way out of hand, but that is they're slowly chipping away at. But looking at this huge awareness of gray rhinos in Asia and coming back to the United States and having this sense that there, there are these huge problems and, you know, we're talking about Twitter all the time and uh, that there really is a difference between Western and, uh, and Asian sensibilities. There certainly is across generations or certainly between men and women. And uh, even, you know, within each of those groups, not everybody conforms to the stereotype. So it's it's really fascinating to ask why does each of us see risk the way that we do or don't? And why do we respond in the way that we do or don't? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the China example, because this is the reason I, I confess that, that your book came onto my came to my attention, because I, I guess it was Xi Jinping over the summer said that there were these real significant problems in the Chinese economy, that they were gray rhinos and citing your work. It's amazing how and that suddenly, you know, took over the conversation within China and economic policymaking. That obviously, I guess, changed your experience a lot of how, how all these things work. I mean, what was that like? Well, it's it's amazing. Uh, you know, my, my career started in Latin America and Europe, and I went to Asia for the first time about 10 years ago and had been to China a couple times before the, the book came out. It's been fascinating to see what's happened over the over the past year with financial risk. You know, a lot of the risks that the Chinese government identified in the National Financial Work Conference in July are very much in keeping with what I hear from international investors. The you know, high corporate debt, particularly in the, the state-owned enterprises, a real estate bubble, worries about currency and other potential market shocks, uh, shadow banking, you know, the of the books financial activity that they don't even really know how to measure because it's uh, in the shadows, so to speak, you know, new financial products that they need new frameworks to regulate. But what I really love about the way the Chinese have used the gray rhino concept is that they've they've done the analysis, they've done the homework, they've identified the problems, they've diagnosed them. And the gray rhino pulls in a whole new emotional factor. You know, I come from a, a world of journalism and then uh, and then policy and think tanks where, you know, I could sit down with a spreadsheet for hours and just be happy as a clam and, you know, think about all these very wonky things. But most people don't get that excited and facts and figures don't get people to move and act. That's why you really need something emotional that people can hang on to. Very much like the Black Swan did with people who, you know, finally realize that sometimes you're going to get sideswiped by things you can't picture. And in this case, you know, thinking of a, of a gray rhino coming at you with the big horn, it's they can go I don't know, 30 miles an hour. Um, that image is very, very powerful and emotional and creates a sense of urgency around some of these things 
in a way that, you know, statistics about the number of non-performing loans and blah, 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 can't really do. And, and particularly with a broader population who, you know, their, their eyes glaze over when they see some of these financial numbers, but they know that they can't afford to buy an apartment in Beijing for their family. And so the, the gray rhino in China has, has worked exactly as I had hoped it would as a metaphor that helps to create urgency around problems. And of course, the next step is, is tracking the progress in that. You know, there certainly have been a number of policies put in place. You know, the day after the, the government talked about gray rhinos on the front page of the People's Daily, that, you know, the small cap and tech stocks fell by 5%. They've since come up, you know, in, in part because of a belief that the government is uh, working to solve some of these problems. But, you know, really leadership needs to say, hey, this is a priority. And then the next step is to figure out how to how to track your progress, what's working and what's not. And once you've created a public sense of urgency, you've got more leeway to make some of the hard decisions. Uh, so I'm hoping that over the, the coming uh, year and years in China, that we will see some progress in the direction of dealing with China's debt and real estate and, and other capital markets, gray rhinos. So one of the challenges of cultivating urgency, or the, the dangers of it, which I mean, I think you're absolutely right about the, the need to do it to motivate people, but you have to make sure that the urgency is being directed at the right things. And so you have a great example in the book about the way we've reacted to Ebola versus the way we react to the flu. Kind of give us more of a sense of that and how it you know, illustrates the need to prioritize properly. Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, the, the chances of getting Ebola were, were so small. But I remember coming back that fall from a business trip to Morocco and getting uh, some uh, hemorrhages in my in my eye and having to go to the emergency room. There's a big sign in the emergency room that says, you know, if you've been to Africa within the last you know month or whatever, let us know. And uh, so I said, well, oh, yeah, I just got back from Africa and I'd gotten back less than 24 hours before. And, you know, my sister said the best thing about driving me to the emergency room was seeing how big the nurse's eyes got when I said I was in Africa. And I was like, well, you know, Morocco is really kind of a long way where, from where this happened. Although a couple of weeks later, this a woman uh, flew to Spain through Casablanca and did come down with Ebola. So maybe it wasn't as, um, as, as crazy as, as I thought. But you know, there's just complete panic over Ebola, whereas, you know, the, the odds of anyone getting it were, were quite, quite low. But at the same time, you had one of the highest levels of uh, flu infections in many years. You've got a very, very small number of people who are still getting the, the flu vaccine. And you've got this whole anti-vaxxer movement. And, you know, it just made no sense. You know, people were not paying enough attention to, to priorities and real probabilities of things happening. Of course, this goes right back to behavioral economics, the availability bias. You know, something that's emotionally salient is going to be more prominent in your mind than something that's kind of like boring, like, yeah, 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 the flu goes around every year. And, and that's where habits come in. I mean, I get my flu vaccination every year. Since starting to write about this stuff, I've been much better about putting in my calendar, you know, you know check your oil. You know, I, I get my, uh, my teeth cleaned. I get my new appointment for three months, you know, every time I go in to get my teeth cleaned, but but setting up regular systems where things happen automatically 
has become much more a part of my life than it was before I started writing about gray rhinos. And it's, it's precisely because of these, these biases that, that get in the way. And the fact that we're much less likely to pay attention to the things that are the most likely to come up and kick us in the butt. So the last question I want to ask you is you mentioned in the book that you had a chance to participate in the good judgment project. I remember reading Philip Tetlock's book a couple of years ago. I found it very interesting. Can you kind of explain what that was and what, what the experience was like? Sure. Well, Phil Tetlock's work is, is fantastic. I mean, they, they basically decided to uh, crowdsource predictions. There's a lot of research that shows that if you get a bunch of, of minds together, you get your, your hive mind, you're going to come up with a much better prediction than any one person could do alone. And it's, it's like if you have a, a jar of coins and you poll everybody for how much the total amount is, the total amount is going to be much closer to the total than any of the individual estimates. So I started to uh, participate in some of their predictions. Uh, you, you become part of a group and you know the group is rated. But before you do it, you do a training that helps you to see uh, both how your level of confidence in a prediction compares to the prediction that you've made. And then also, as you do more and more predictions and you get a better sense of the relationship between your confidence and how accurate something is, you can actually improve your ability. And that was fascinating to me. I got a much better sense of when my predictions were good and when they weren't, uh, when my confidence was merited and when it wasn't. And that said to me that people can get better. Yes, we have biases, but when you're aware of them and when you're thinking and really applying what you've learned to your predictions, you can get better. And, and that's so important that it's not a given. It's not like the elephant in the room where you can't do anything about it. And by definition, you don't do anything about it. You can get better. And that's why we need to pay attention to our biases and to the things that we do that aren't so sensible that really by going after a fair amount of low-hanging fruit, we could do much better on. Well, I'm really glad we were able to end on a hopeful note. Michelle Wooker, thank you very much for coming. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure. So now what we like to do at the end of our interviews is briefly do some recommendations of long-form media that we recommend to our listeners. Could be a book, could be an article, a movie. I'm going to go first. I read an article recently in The New Yorker that was about the role that oil has played in the economy of Texas and the booms and busts that have occurred, particularly focusing on, on both the economy of, of Houston and of the places that are relatively underpopulated in West Texas. I thought it was very interesting. What are you, Michelle? Well, we'd love to read that. I, I went to college in Houston and uh, experienced some of that in the mid-80s personally, so look forward to that article. I had a really good time reading The Undoing Project by Michael Lewis, which was about the, the friendship between Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky in some of the groundbreaking work that they did on behavioral economics and many of the biases that I wrote about in The Gray Rhino and continue to think about every day. And that's the end of Matt's conversation with Michelle Wooker. Let us know what you think. You can send us an email at alphachat at ft.com. Please rank and review the show on Apple Podcasts. As I say every week, it really helps other people find out about us, but it also helps us improve what we do each week. Thanks again to Matt and Michelle for today's show, and we'll see you here next week for a brand new episode of Alpha Chat.
Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.